0: Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. It is beautiful outside. Perfect September day with lots of sunshine. Oh, would you look at Washington, huh? I'm going outside today.
1: Other than that, it's kind of quiet around the country. We like quiet. It's quiet.
2: It's too quiet. Is that American 11 trying to call? We have some planes.
3: Just stay
2: quiet and you'll be okay. We're returning to the airport.
3: The pilot, everyone's been stabbed. They're in the back of the airplane. They're not. Oh, the hijackers are in the cockpit.
4: Oh. oh, no. Okay, we just lost connection. This is CNN breaking news.
0: This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. Of the World Trade Center, a gigantic
3: sonic boom. The air is filled with hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper that are just sort of floating like confetti.
1: You say that emergency vehicles are there. so.
3: It's but of
1: course, the major concern is human oh my loss. I mean, oh my God! Another plane has just hit.
3: Oh, another one just hit.
2: Oh my God! Oh
1: my God! Why do you say that was definitely on purpose?
5: It's because. It literally blew itself into World Trade Center. Early reports are that at least one of those planes was a hijacked American Airlines plane en route from Boston to Los Angeles. Thousands of people that have been running from inside these buildings. Were blanking dying when asked what
1: was happening and hung up. There was screaming and yelling in the background, and a follow-up call
5: was not answered.
1: We heard a big bang, and then we saw smoke coming out, and everybody started running out, and we saw the plane on the other side of the building, and there was smoke everywhere, and people are jumping out the windows. Over there, they're jumping out the windows, I guess, because they're trying to see themselves. I don't know.
2: Bodies started dropping from the top floors of the uh power closest to the highway. Obviously, they had two choices, to be burned in flames or to uh, leap and end it all. It was quite tragic.
6: And you're listening to the sounds of September 11th, 2001. This is our American Stories. That first plane crash. The first plane crash happened about 10 minutes before newly elected President Bush arrived at Booker Elementary School, the first black school in Sarasota, Florida. At 9.05 a.m., White House Chief of Staff Andy Card whispered into Bush's ear, quote, a second plane has hit the second tower. America is under attack. Let's go to President Bush's first press conference immediately following the second attack.
0: David, we're going to, to cut the cut President Bush is speaking. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a, a difficult moment for America. Uh, today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes... Have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country, and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government go to help the victims and their families, and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now if you join me in a moment of silence, may God bless the victims, their families, and America. Thank you very much.
6: And the story just kept getting worse.
1: Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. There is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. Associated Press is reporting that a plane crashed at the Pentagon.
0: The heart of the military uh, command center of the United States of America, John. It can't get much worse than this, let's hope.
2: I'm in front of the Capitol, and a moment ago, police officers ran up to us and told us, and I quote, there is a plane that has been hijacked and is headed this way.
1: It should be noted that there are sharpshooters on the roof of the White House who have anti aircraft missiles for just this kind of situation. Wow. And some Jamie, people were. Jamie, I need you to stop for a second. There has just been a huge explosion, we can see uh, a billowing smoke rising.
0: Let's go to the Trade Tower again because, John, we now have a... What do we have? We don't... It looks like a a new
7: plume, a new large plume of smoke.
3: Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! (laughs)
7: We're not sure exactly what
1: happened, but it was another explosion on the far side of one of the buildings from where we're standing. The, ver- the, the reverberation and another explosion on the right-hand side. And I can't, I'll, I'll tell you that I can't see that second tower, but y- there was a cascade of sparks and fire, and now this it looks almost like a mushroom cloud. What is behind it, I, I cannot tell you. But just look at that. That is about as frightening a scene as you will ever see. The whole side has collapsed. The whole
2: building has collapsed. September. The I, whole I, building has collapsed. The building has collapsed. It My pulled it down on itself. Was
8: three of us in
3: this office. We're not ready to die, but it's getting bad. lots of people up here. Oh, God! Oh, oh there, it there it goes. There it goes. There it goes. There it goes.
1: And there, as you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is collapsing.
9: United
2: 93, go ahead.
9: Uh, As a captain, I would like to remain seated. We have a bomb
7: aboard and are going to back to the airport and have our demands so please, remain quiet. Affirmative, he said there was a bomb on board.
1: Did you hear uh, some interference on the frequency uh, a couple of minutes ago screaming? We have a report that a 747. Uh, is down in Pennsylvania. I need to interrupt you. This is a Taliban spokesman uh, talking uh, now in Kabul, I believe.
10: Uh, Sources are telling CNN that there are, quote, good indications that people with links to the Osama bin Laden organization are responsible for today's attacks.
0: Dateline, uh, West Bank, uh, thousands of Palestinians celebrated today's terror attacks in the United States chanting, God is great, and distributing candy to passersby. And when
6: we come back for the hour, remembering 9-11-2001, This is Our American Stories.
3: Completely engulfed. We're on the floor and we can't breathe. Okay. And it's very, very, very hot. It's very. Is it, all the lights still on? The lights are on, but it, it's very, very hot. Everybody, stay calm. Hold on one second, please. I'm stay gonna cool. die, aren't I? No, 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 no. no. Say your, i'm gonna die. Ma'am, 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 say your prayers. And we're not. I'm we're, gonna, gonna die. we're gonna think positive because you gotta help each other get off the floor. I'm now die. I'm now I'm look, die. Stay calm. Stay calm. Stay calm.
6: This is Our American Stories, remembering September 11, 2001. We want to share a few stories in this hour, among the many thousands of tragedies. Also, all kinds of heroism on display, but lots of loss, lots of love, lots of anger, too, on that day. And here's Jay Jonas of the Fire Department of the City of
11: New York. On September 11, 2001, I was the captain of Ladder Company 6 in the Chinatown section of Lower Manhattan. It was a change of tours, and uh, all of a sudden, we heard a a large jet trail go across the sky, and uh, we could hear the plane hit the North Tower. Uh, We responded, and uh, we arrived at the uh, North Tower of the World Trade Center. As we were responding in, we could see uh, large gaping holes and two sides of the uh, North Tower with uh, smoke and fire coming out under pressure. And it was an incredible sight, something that, you know, I was a, I had 22 years on the fire department at the time in some very busy places and uh, nothing prepared me for what I was seeing. And um, we got there, we um, went to receive our orders uh, from uh, the incident commander, which was Deputy Chief Pete Hayden. And as as we were waiting to get our orders, uh, we saw a large black shadow on the ground, and we heard a loud explosion. And we didn't know what that was. And a man came running in from the outside and said that a second plane has just hit the second tower. So now we knew we were under attack. Uh, It was not an accident. And uh, one of the most poignant things that was ever said that day was, at this point, one of the firemen that I was standing near um, just looked up and he said, he said gentlemen, we may not live through today. And uh, all the firemen that were standing there, uh, we all agreed. And we wished each other good luck and shook each other's hands. And, and uh, out of all the guys I was surrounded by when the, uh, that plane hit the South Tower, I'm the only one that's alive. They all died.
6: The North Tower was exactly where the 1993 attackers detonated their truck bomb in the first terrorist incident and first terrorist attack against the World Trade Center. But in that moment, in that firehouse, there was no time to think back. These firefighters had a job to do.
11: I received our orders from Chief Hayden to go up for search and rescue in the North Tower. So we proceeded to go up by foot. We made it to the 27th floor, and um, we were catching our breath and getting a a quick drink of water. When we felt uh, and heard the uh, collapse of the south tower we were in the north tower and um that was an indication to me that it was time uh, that our mission was no longer workable that it was time for us to get out of there and we started heading down the stairs uh, as we were going down the stairs we came upon a woman who was in distress she couldn't walk and uh one of my firemen Tommy falco turned and looked at me and he says hey cap what do you want to do with her and uh even knowing that we were in the full retreat mode, that we were run, essentially running for our lives, uh, we couldn't pass her. So we, we decided to put ourselves into harm's way to to save her. And uh, so we did. We started carrying her down the stairs, which created a logjam of people behind us, so we had to step aside a couple times to let them pass. And um, we had made it to the fourth floor, and uh, she, uh, she fell to the floor and she was yelling at us, telling us to leave her. And we weren't going to leave her. So uh, we broke in, I broke into the fourth floor to look for a sturdy chair that we could put her on and we could pick her up within the ch- with her in the chair and run with her. And I couldn't find one. It wasn't an office floor. I almost made it back to the, fo- to the stairway. That's when the collapse of my building started.
6: At 10.28 a.m. on 9-11, after being on fire for 102 minutes, the north tower collapsed. It took 13 seconds, at least that's what the clocks say. Back to firefighter Jay Jonas, remembering what it was like inside as the north tower crumbled on top of them.
11: I uh, received our orders from Chief Hayden to go up for search and rescue in the north tower, so we proceeded to go. I uh, received our orders. We kept waiting for the the big beam or the big piece of concrete to come and get us, and for us it didn't come. And uh, you know, once the collapse stopped. We gave out a a roll call to see who was still alive, and all my men were still alive. The women we were rescuing was still alive. Uh, there was a total of uh, thirteen of us in the stairway and um, so we uh but now we're trapped you know, so we're going through uh, the ordeal of trying to figure out how to get out and then once we realized we couldn't help ourselves, we had to mentally come to the um, realization that you know we're, we're in need of rescue that you know, we're no longer the rescuers we're the rescuees and uh, so we had to uh, talking to several people on the radio some of them were some of my closest friends in the fire department and uh, it was very comforting to talk to them after about after a very harrowing ordeal of being trapped it was about um, three and a half to four hours later it's so when um, a ray of sunshine hit the, uh, hit the stairway and it was coming from the outside. The this, this smoke and dust had cleared to the point where um, uh, the sunlight hit the stairway. We realized that we were essentially on top of the World Trade Center. We're on the fourth floor and we're on top of the World Trade Center.
6: But Jay didn't have time to dwell on this rather amazing and certainly sobering point they were still trapped in the building, with civilians, including a collapsed woman. And so they went back
11: to work. With the added light, we, we, we saw a way that we, we could get out. And uh, uh, one of the people who were trapped wanted to get out right away. So we tied him off on a rope, and uh, we told him to make contact with a fireman that we saw off in the distance. He tied off the rope, and we tied off the rope in the stairway, and we started sending people out on the rope. And uh, by the time the firemen made it to the uh, to the stairway, we had almost everybody out, but the, the, they had to take out Josephine Harris, the woman. And uh, they needed fresh people and a Stokes basket stretcher to take her out. And then we worked our way across the rubble. And uh, I didn't know it at the time. It was my last run as a captain of ladder six, because uh, I'd be promoted five days later. But um, it was... Uh, heartwarming to see, one by one, my men making it to West Street, and I felt once they made it to West Street, they would be safe. And uh, one by one, I got to see that happen. From a, uh, a fire officer's perspective, under a, a day like that, it, uh, my men made it. You know, and, and I sent them home to their families that night, which was certainly not a common thing that happened that day. You know that. Uh, uh, we're very fortunate.
6: And you know what? This woman, Josephine Harris, saved these fighters' lives, too. She collapsed on the fourth floor, so that's where Jane and his men slowed down. When the building collapsed, no one survived above the fifth floor or down on the first. For years after, she and the fighters who took turns carrying her downstairs stayed in touch. Whenever Josephine was asked for an interview, she would call the firefighters to make sure... They were okay with it, and they would always say yes, and that they'd be there for her. On January 11, 2011, Josephine Harris called 911 from her apartment in Brooklyn. Firefighters and paramedics rushed to the scene, but it was too late. Josephine had died of an apparent heart attack. Jay Jonas later said that it was, quote, like losing a member of your family, and she really was a member of the latter Six family. They then learned that Josephine was penniless. It turns out her family couldn't afford to bury her, so her body stayed at the city morgue. Well, Jay and the guys, they called around for help, and the owner of the Greenwich Village Funeral Home remembered the story of the guardian angel of Ladder Six. He took care of all the funeral costs, and Jonas and the firefighters carried her one more time, one last time, as pallbearers of a casket engraved with the words, Guardian Angel. This is Our American Stories, Jay Jonas' story, the story of 9-11, remembered. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, remembering the anniversary of 9-11. Many companies and families lost loved ones that day. I lost one of my best friends, co-captain of my high school basketball team for two years. There was nothing we didn't do together for so many years, Paul Biattini. There was one investment company that lost 658 of its 960 employees. Before that day, Cantor Fitzgerald hadn't been all that well-known beyond Wall Street. However, after 9-11, it was known as the business to have lost the most employees on 9-11. Quote, We have death fame, CEO Howard Lutnick said. A few days after the horrific event, Lutnick participated in an emotional interview He didn't just lose all those employees, by the way. One of them was his brother. Here he is, explaining why he wasn't there.
5: My little boy, I have a five-year-old, and it was his first day of kindergarten at at Har's Man, so I took him for his first day at big boy school. And uh, because of that, I was late getting down to the office, and uh, therefore I wasn't in the building, I was on my way. I saw the building on fire, so I, I didn't go in. Um, but I stood I stood at the door um, off of Church Street um, where there were flags there and I stood at that door um, and people were coming out and I was yelling at them you know, to run and get out and uh, there were police sort of around me um, yelling at people telling them to get out and, and I would ask them what floor they were coming from what floor are they coming from someone would say 55 and I'd scream we have 55 because and, and, I kept wanting to get up the building and well my brother my brother was on the 103rd floor he worked he worked for me and um, he worked at Canner and uh, he, he called my sister uh, just after the just after the plane hit and he told her that um, he said that the smoke was pouring in he was he was stuck in a corner office there was no way out and the smoke was coming in and he's, he's not good and, and things are not good and he's not going to make it and he just wanted to say that he loved her and he wanted to say goodbye and uh, tell her when that that he loved them. And then the phone went The phone went dead.
6: The plane crashed into floors 93 through 99. Cantor Fitzgerald was located right above that.
5: 101 to 105, the top floors of of number one World Trade Center, the, which they call now the North Tower. I got to the 91st floor, and I knew if I got one employee, what, if one person came down from that floor, then I know that there had to be others. There would be others behind them. There would be others going out other doors that that would be good, but I got up to 91 and then I heard this sound. It sounded like another plane was gonna hit the building. And was it, but it didn't sound like it was far away, it sounded like it was like right where the ceiling is above us. It was so unbelievably loud and someone screamed out, another one's coming, so I just turned around and ran and I, and I was running, I, it, was, it was number two World Trade Center collapsing. So I'm, I'm, I'm standing underneath a building like an idiot. Um, and I start running and I'm trying to get ahead of the smoke and then the smoke comes around the corner on Trinity Church where I ran and knocks me down underneath a truck and I'm sitting there in this black, the blackest black that can ever be. I reached up, I tried to see if I could see and I took my hands and I put it up and I actually touched my eye. I, I couldn't see my hand. I could feel the particles in the air. They were, they were like this big. I could feel them going in and I, wasn't, I couldn't think to like, pick up my shirt. and put, I, was just, I was just sitting there thinking, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe by standing there I died. So I just started walking. I just start walking straight and I just walk straight and I just keep walking straight. And I called my wife four hours later and she was hysterical crying. And so I understand why it took lots of people a long time. I, I was, I'm a pretty together person and I, four hours I walked, I just walked north. I just kept walking.
6: And he just kept walking. All the Cantor Fitzgerald companies are connected by speakerphone so there were voices heard from the tower amidst the chaos.
5: Yeah, we have, you know, a speakerphone because all our offices are connected in our equity business. They're, um, they're all connected to each other because they talk to each other all day. And they heard them saying, you know, we need help, we need help, we need help. Uh, it wasn't, it, it wasn't screams. It was, there was nowhere to go. You couldn't go down, couldn't go up. There was nowhere to go. But I don't know of a single one of my employees who got down. Zero zero and it's really sad but i think we're all pulling together with the view that we want to make things happen for them we we need to take care of them we need to figure out how to take care of them and give them more and take care of them and i think it's going to be a different kind of drive than i've ever had before it's not about my it's not about my family i get to kiss my kids i get to kiss my kids tonight but other people don't get to kiss their kids and i just have to help them and i think i think what's amazing and i think it's amazing you have 300 people. They lost all their friends. They lost a person to their left. They lost a person to their right. And they call me up and they say, I want to go to work. I say, why do you want to go to work? Let's just go to funerals. And they go, no, no, I want to go to work. I can't stay home. I can't stay home. I have to make, I have to work. I have to do something. And so they, they actually wanted to try to figure out how to be in business. It's unbelievable. It's great. It doesn't make any sense. But the... the the reason they want to be in business, and there's only one reason to be in business, is because we have to make our company be able to take care of my 700 families. 700 families. And 700 families.
10: I just, I can't say it.
5: I can't say it without crying.
6: Well, a different kind of drive that he'd never known before kicked in. To Howard Lutnick and those remaining employees, Howard further explains what Cantor Fitzgerald was doing before and after.
5: Cantor Fitzgerald is the primary, it's like the exchange for the world's bond markets. I mean, it's, it, it is the exchange for the world bond markets. Uh, we last, last year we did $50 trillion in business. Today, the remaining employees of Cantor Fitzgerald and Eastpeed have worked every second since that bomb and they made the decision and i told them there's no reason for us to open i don't care when we open if we open it doesn't matter to me and they collectively 250 of them collectively voted that they were going to open the markets and this morning at 7 a.m those people opened for business not to to make money not but they did it because they thought if the if the Fed and the Treasury wanted it to be open, it was important enough for them to show strength for America and for these markets. Then they were going to do their damnedest to get it open, and they did. And it—I I voted against it. I said, "Why? I, I don't want you to work. I want you to go home and kiss your kids and and hug your families." And but they—it's them. They wanted—they wanted to do it, maybe for themselves, maybe for the, their friends who they lost. But so right the second, it, our electronic systems are running around the world, and it's. I don't know. Maybe it's a miracle. Maybe it's because these people are just... They're unbelievable. I think you can only be a good boss if you have the right people. And I'm glad they chose to be with me, but I'm the saddest person in the world that they chose to be with me because they would have chosen to be with me.
6: (laughs) So many people, so many names, so many people I loved. So many people we all loved... Again, that's Howard Lutnick, the CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald. They lost so much, but they did go back to work, and here's why. After 9-11, the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund was established. All those people went back to work for a cause, a big cause. They have distributed more than $180 million to the family of Cantor Fitzgerald. One quarter of the firm's profits What a great American story. What a sad American story. Cantor Fitzgerald's story, Howard Lutnick's story, here on Our American Stories, 9-11, Remembered. To George Bush. Those words will go down in history. And you're also listening to Tom Petty, performing on September 21, 2001, in a very special tribute put on by Fox, ABC, NBC, and CBS, a musical tribute called America, a tribute to heroes. And my goodness, what a lineup of stars that night. It was everybody. And music has the ability to just heal and bring people together. And it was Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Wonder and U2 and Faith Hill. Petty, as you just heard, Enrique Iglesias, Neil Young, Alicia Keys, Billy Joel, the Dixie Chicks, Mariah Carey, Bon Jovi, Sheryl Crow, Sting, Paul Simon, Celine Dion, Willie Nelson. It was a remarkable, remarkable night of music. And I think the whole country watched it and just shut up and listened. And it was beautiful. And no talking by the musicians, almost none. They just played. So let's go back there because we love music here on Our American Stories. Let's take a listen to Mr. New Yorker himself, Billy Joel.
8: Some folks like to get away Take a holiday from the neighborhood
9: Have a flight to Miami Beach Shore Hollywood Me, I'm taking a Greyhound on the Hudson River Line.
8: I'm in a New York state of mind.
6: And just a few minutes later, Mr. New Jersey stepped up. And performed a song he'd written about his hometown that he tweaked. He'd never played it before nationally. And it was perfect and a perfect song for the occasion.
9: It's a prayer for our fallen brothers and sisters. There's a blood red circle a cold dark ground and the rain is falling down the church door's thrown open I can hear the organ song but the congregation's gone my city of ruins my city of ruins Now the sweet bells of mercy drift through the evening trees, young men on the corner like scattered leaves, the boarded up windows, the empty streets, and my brother's down on his knees, my city of ruins. My city of ruin Come on, rise up 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 Come on, rise
3: up
6: And perhaps the best song written about 9-11 was by Alan Jackson. He wrote it. He sang it. Where were you in the world Stop turning? And I remember where I was. And I remember Alan talking about that song once in an interview, and he had said it made everybody reevaluate their lives. Well, I reevaluated mine. I was an inveterate bachelor dating a great girl. And I ended up proposing to that girl and getting married to her. And she was in the same place. She thought she'd never settle down. And the same thing happened to her, to us. And we've got a beautiful daughter. And I think 9-11, well, that was the reason for it. It Made a lot of us grow up. And so closing out this hour where so many perished, and my goodness, 2,606 were killed at the World Trade Center, 125 at the Pentagon, 265 in all four planes, On Flight 93, 40 civilians were killed. 2,996 Americans altogether perished. Friends, family, lovers, employees. And, well, here on Our American Stories, we'll always remember this day in history. And so let's close it out with Alan Jackson. And again, no one sang it better. No one wrote it better. Where were you when the world stopped turning?
8: Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? Were you in the yard with your wife and children, or working on some stage in L.A.? Did you stand there in shock? The sight of that black smoke Rising against that blue sky Did you shout out in anger And fear for your neighbor Or did you just sit down and cry Did you weep for the children Who lost their dear loved ones Pray for the ones who don't know Did you rejoice for the people Who walked from the rubble and for the ones left below Did you burst out with pride For the red, white, and blue And the heroes who died Just doing what they do Did you look up to heaven For some kind of answer And look at yourself And what really matters I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference in Iraq and Iran. But I know Jesus, and I talk to God, and I remember this from when I was young. Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us, and the
3: greatest
6: is love. And Alan Jackson is still stunned that to this day that song has staying power. Our special 9 11 hour here in Our American Stories, one of the biggest American stories of the century in our history. This is Our American Stories.
8: Stories.
6: In a crowded
8: room, did you feel alone? Did you call up your mother and tell her you loved her? Did you dust off that Bible at home? Did you open your eyes, hope it never happened Close your eyes and not go to sleep Did you notice the sunset, the first time in ages Speak to some stranger on the street Did you lay down at night, think of tomorrow Go out and buy you a gun Did you turn off that violent old movie you're watching And turn on Isla blue Siri runs Did you go to a church and hold hands with some strangers Stand in line and give your own blood Did you just stay home and cling tight to your family Thank God you had somebody to love I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference in Iraq and Iran. But I know Jesus, and I've talked to God, and I remember this from when I was young. Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us, and the greatest is love. I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN But I'm not sure I can tell you The difference in our rock and our red. But I know Jesus and I talk to God And I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope and love are some good things He gave us And the greatest is love And the greatest is love And the greatest is love Where were you when the world stopped turning On that September day?
6: and this is Our American Stories and we're listening to the iconic southern rock band Leonard Skinner and their classic song Sweet Home Alabama and for the hour we're going to talk about one of Alabama's greats this day in history Bear Bryant was born in 1913 and we're going to celebrate his life we're going to hear from his ex-players people who've written about him And we're going to get it, The Secret to Bear Bryant's success. And that word character will appear again and again. And our This Days in History, as always, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And by the way, They love to teach and talk about character and virtue a lot over there at Hillsdale, which makes them different than all the other colleges in this country. In an episode of Law & Order, the late actor and U.S. Senator Fred Thompson let his fellow New York prosecutors know that if it weren't for Osama bin Laden, September 11th would properly be remembered for being Bear Bryant's birthday. On the day of his funeral, the state of Alabama came To a complete stop. Let's take a listen to a local TV station reporting that day.
0: The motorcades came perhaps one of the most loving tributes to the legendary coach. As the four-mile-long procession made its way along the interstate, large crowds gathered to pay their last respects. Some wore the traditional crimson and white in honor of the man they consider a hero. Many carried signs expressing a heartfelt message. a sad day for uh, all Alabamians uh, because uh, he uh, meant something, you know, to every one of us. Sometimes. Every mile along the motorcade's route, the crowds grew larger. Hundreds of cars lined the interstate as the procession drew nearer to Elmwood Cemetery.
6: Three churches in Tuscaloosa filled to capacity for the services. Thousands of cars and trucks pulled to the side of I-2059 as the funeral procession moved to its final destination, as we just heard in that report. Elmwood Cemetery in Birmingham. By the way, folks still go there to pay tribute to this man. News accounts estimated that nearly 250,000 Alabama residents lined roads and overpasses along that 55-mile route. That's approximately 12% of Alabama's total state population to pay their respects. Here's player John Coyle, who was at the funeral service And by the way, he played on three SEC championship teams for Coach Bryant and won a national championship in 1973. Let's listen to John.
2: What happens is uh, even when at the funeral, uh, all of us that had played, they had a roped-off area, and not one of us cried. That wasn't because of anything other. It's just even in his death, he still influenced us, and it was you celebrate life. You don't cry that I'm gone. Yep. And we were all sad because he had uh, – there's, there's three kinds of people you're going to meet. People that impress you, people that impact you, and people that inspire you. You know, And Coach Bryant obviously was impressive, and he impacted. But greatness – I mean, I wasn't any good, but Coach Bryant made me think I was.
6: Boy, he made a lot of players think they were good and led Alabama's Crimson Tide football team to six national championships. And six of his Alabama teams were ranked number one. He wasn't just a coach, former USC coach John McKay said of Bryant. He was the coach. As another college football season begins, by the way, it is worth looking back at the life of this larger-than-life man. His nickname was Bear, said Joe Namath, who played at Alabama for Bryant. Now imagine a guy that can carry... That nickname, Bear. By the way, here's what Joe Namath, who played again for the great Bear Bryant from 1962 to 1964, won a national championship in 64. Here's what he had to say generally about Coach Bryant.
12: I would uh, describe him as a friend, as a mentor, as uh, a man uh, that was stronger than me, that I wish I could be like him in a lot of ways. Uh, He's a hard worker, and uh, he wasn't always right, but uh, he he wouldn't mind saying when he was wrong either, you see. The way he worked, the way he demanded things out of his players, uh, it wasn't a democracy, you know. You had to do it his way. His way was the best. I mean, he had proven that prior to coming to Alabama, Texas A&M, Kentucky, you know, Maryland. So uh, we believed in him. Coach Bryant had a way of getting more out of the gifted guys, trying to get more out of the gifted guys, and appreciating the guys. When I say gifted, Coach Bryant appreciated effort, boy. He appreciated the guys that uh, weren't as gifted uh, athletically as some of the other guys, but worked hard.
6: Work, hard work, that's going to be a core theme as we continue And when we come back, we're going to hear more about the roots of this work ethic. Where did it come from? Where did Paul Bear Bryant come from? Where was he born? What were the circumstances of his life? Because, my goodness, when you hear his story, hear where he came from and and from what he sprang and from where he sprang. By the way, a little patch of earth in Arkansas that almost nobody's ever heard of. Well, so many great men and women in this country come from small, small towns, Ended up having large, larger-than-life impact. When we come back, more on the life of Bear Bryant. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Paul Bear Bryant, born on this day in history in 1913. His story continues here on Our American Stories. American Stories, we continue with a celebration of the life of Bear Bryant. The craggy-faced coach roamed the Alabama sidelines in his houndstooth hat for 25 years, but his legacy wasn't just about wins. It was the impact he had on thousands of athletes he coached, and we're going to hear from a whole bunch of them throughout this hour. And by the way, when you hear from them, it's sometimes 30, 40, uh, 45 years later and yet these grown men are talking about things as if it had happened yesterday. Bryant was born in Morrowbottom, Arkansas, a town so small that the town a few miles down the road, Fordyce, was considered a big one with a population of 3,200. He was the 11th of 12 kids, three of whom died as infants. His family was poor. Bryant's father was a farmer while his mother, Ida May, tended to the family. His dad became ill when Paul was a toddler, forcing his wife to run the farm. Work became a fact of life for the Bryant children. Bear was big, eventually growing to six feet four. He later recalled acquiring his nickname as a teenager in high school when he accepted a dare to wrestle a bear. He also remembered having an inferiority complex when he was a young man, all, of course, from growing up so poor and so isolated. He was heckled. As a tackle at the Fordyce High School football team, Bear walked away with all state honors and a scholarship to play at, of all places, his home state's arch rival, the University of Alabama. It was there that Bryant developed his appetite for winning. His team won 23 games and lost only three when he was a starter. Alabama won a national championship in 1934 and beat Stanford in the 1935 Rose Bowl. Luckily for college football fans everywhere, Bryant didn't have the talent to play in the NFL. He joined the Navy after Pearl Harbor, and after completing his service in 1945, did what God created him to do, lead boys in battle on the gridiron and turn them into men. After bouncing around the South for a dozen years as a coach with three football programs, Maryland, Kentucky, and Texas A&M, Bryant got the call he'd always dreamed of. And returned to his alma mater. Quote, it was like when you were out in the field and you heard your mama calling you, calling you to dinner, he explained at his joy of returning to Alabama. Mama called, Bryant told reporters. Alabama won just four games in three years prior to Bear Bryant's arrival, but in his first full season in 1958, Alabama won five and lost four, and by 1961, he received his first number one ranking nationally, going undefeated and beating Arkansas in the Sugar Bowl. What was the key to his success? It was his fierce work habits and the mental toughness he instilled in his players. And now let's hear from Joe Namath, who tells a story about Coach Bryant.
12: We were running an option right and just... uh... Before I got hit, I pitched the ball, and it was a bad pitch. The voice that I'm hearing now, name it, not just your job to run the pitch, you get on the ball, whatever, and he was screaming a little bit at. So I get up off the ground, and I'm walking back, and yep, yep, yep. And about that time, he had that face mask of mine in his hand, and he had me jacked up. He said, boy, when I talk to you, you look me in the eye and say, sir. I said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And I was on my toes, by the way. He's pulling that face mask up. My senior year, I could have been three football fields away if I heard, Joe, yes, sir. (laughs) He had a way of getting players' attention.
6: Indeed. And by the way, Bear was more than a coach. You could hear it there. He was a teacher. And he wasn't afraid to teach his boys hard lessons about life. One of those lessons, winning isn't as important as respecting the team and the rules of the coach.
12: Well, I broke a training rule, and we had an off week. And that weekend of the off week, someone had told him that I was uh, downtown, drunk, directing traffic, which was wrong. And when Coach Bryant questioned me about this, he said, Joe, now, uh, I'm going to take your word on this, because I trust you. I believe you. I've got word, though, that you were downtown doing this. And I no, sir, that's not true. And then he said, uh, you didn't have anything to drink on Saturday? Well, Saturday night I went to a fraternity party and I did have a drink, a seven and seven that I didn't even finish because, you know, I, was, I wasn't was a drinker at that time. And I'm not now. But at that time, but I did have a drink. And when I said, yes, sir, we were standing in uh a room in the dormitory, and there was a bed there. We were both standing up, and when I said yes, sir, he just said, oh, no, 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 and he fell back on the bed. Scared me. And I went, coach, coach, and he said, I'm all right, I'm all right. And uh, when he sat back up and stood up, he said, well, I'm going to have to suspend you. He said, but first I'm going to meet with the coaches. We'll talk about this. You come over to the office at 2 o'clock. So I went over there to office and all the coaches were already standing out there in the foyer. And when I walked in, Coach Bryant walked out and he said, well, we had a meeting. Some of these coaches think uh, we should uh, discipline you some other way. He said that it's all right. We can do that. He said. But if I don't suspend you now, I won't be coaching here next year. I'll retire. And I was scared and embarrassed. And I said, oh, coach, you know, I don't want you to do that. Like, you know, like, no. And I didn't know whether he would or wouldn't. But that's what he said. And I said, oh, no, sir. No, sir. He said, all right, then you you accept the suspension. I want you moved out of the dorm. You move over to another dorm. And you behave yourself for the next four months or whatever. You can come out for spring practice. I said, oh, yes, sir. Thank you.
6: And it wasn't just stars like Joe Namath that were suspended. Let's hear a story from Bob Baumhauer, a five-time NFL Pro Bowl player who played for Bryant in the mid-'70s.
10: I probably am as, as, as good an example as anybody of somebody that came here as a, not just a boy, I wasn't a punk, but I, I, I definitely wasn't a man when I came here. And um, Coach uh, Griska, Coach Griska around Coach Griska and the uh, – off- uh, the, back then we had freshman teams. I was an offensive lineman as a freshman. I asked them to move me to defense and uh, for the spring, and they moved me to defense. I um, moved my way up and became the number two tackle, which meant I was a starter. And, uh, back then, that's the way Coach Bryant uh, rated folks, I think, one, two, three, four at each position. And so I thought I had arrived, had a good spring game, and uh, didn't do much between spring and fall and came back and uh, uh, never forget it. Only Willie, Willie Meadows gave me my basket, and it wasn't brown. Back then it was orange or yellow or whatever the heck it was. But I, I was expecting to be a starter, and I was like number 23 on the list. And uh, what had happened is I had not prepared to come back. Uh, I had not prepared properly to come back in great shape, and uh, Coach Bryant knew it. And after the third practice, I said, uh, hey, I don't need this stuff. I was a starter last spring, and uh, I am go, go anywhere and play. And uh, uh, what happened next really changed my life. Uh, I quit, threw my basket at Willie, and, and walked out and got a phone call. That was during two days. Got a phone call that afternoon, and they said, Coach Bryant wanted to see me in his office. And like, like you, Barry, with your meeting, and... And Kenny, and I don't know how many of y'all had your meetings in Coach Bryant's office, but I, sat, I, I uh, went up there and he wanted my dad to go with me. So me and my, my father and myself went up there. And um, Long story short, he was very gracious to my dad, welcomed and then looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing here? And I uh, really didn't know what to, uh, what to say, but he, he basically pretty much put me on my heels. I was all ready for a speech like you were, Barry and um i said well i heard you want to talk to me he said well i don't like talking to quitters but since you're here come on in sit your butt down and um (laughs) yeah but but what happened in that meeting y'all uh he changed my life because before i came to the university of alabama i didn't care about being the best i didn't care about being part of a team there was no commitment from me to be the best i could be for my teammates and What Coach Bryant did in that meeting is went down 22. He went over, he went down the list of 22 players on what they had done to make themselves better from spring to fall. He knew every one of those guys had done. Bill Henderson had lost 40 pounds. This guy had done that. That guy had done that, and pretty much told me that I didn't deserve to be a starter. And by the end of that meeting, I begged for a chance to come back. And Coach Donahue, Coach Bryant said, Coach Donahue would probably kill you. But I'm going to give you a shot. Like uh, somebody else was saying, Coach Bryant would give you a second chance. He gave me a second chance. And, uh, you know, I went on to earn a starting position, went and played Miami. And, and uh, everything I do today, every, every success that I have, every win that I have, in my opinion, came from that meeting. And the fact that Coach Bryant cared enough about me, first of all, to talk to me. Secondly, to turn the light on for me so that I... In that meeting, start thinking like a man instead of a punk boy.
6: And there you have it, Bob Baumhauer talking about Coach Bryant. What a story, folks. And when we come back, more on Coach Paul Bear Bryant, born on this day in history in 1913.
10: Every success that I have, every win that I have, in my opinion, came from that meeting. And the fact that Coach Bryant cared enough about me, first of all, to talk to me. Secondly, to turn the light on for me so that I, in that meeting, start thinking like a man instead of a punk boy.
6: And again, that's Bob Baumauer. I could think like a man instead of a punk boy. What a gift to give a young man. The gift that Bear Bryant gave Bob. And by the way, Bryant was a tireless worker who led by example. He rose at 5 a.m. and didn't stop until late at night. Quote, it's not the will to win that matters, Bryant often said. Everybody has that. It's the will to prepare to win that matters. Here's Coach Bryant talking to his boys about the philosophy that he lived by, and it had to do with details and hard work and preparation.
7: Now, here's why you can win on little things, We'll be talking with you about little things as long as you're here, on little things and a little something extra. Now let's just suppose that we say that that uh, the maximum ability one can have is a hundred. That's the way we'll approach it. And let's say here I am, someone that that really only has, based on that hundred, a seventy-five percent or 75 ability. And here over here is someone that has 85 that I'm going to play against. Now, it it takes everyone, but this is just for you, you as an individual. Now, on Saturday, by virtue of the fact that you have paid the price, you've learned those lessons, you work on the little things, You are willing to give a little extra. Although you only have 75% ability, you play a little over your head, and we expect you to. Okay, you play, and you'll be an 85 player that day. Now, here's another man over here that's playing against you. Now, this could happen. It don't always happen. Then maybe he hasn't played the prize. Maybe he hasn't learned those lessons. Maybe he's not as dedicated as you are. And he doesn't play as well as he's supposed to play and he falls off ten percent or he falls off 10 he only plays 75 and that's just to illustrate my point then you because of your preparation and the things I'm trying to get across to you you can beat him because you played 85 and if we do that as a team 11 at the time. Well, four years from now, we'll be walking out of here as a national champion. And I'll tell you this. I expect nothing less.
6: I expect nothing less. He's giving him a blueprint to success. No screaming, no yelling. Let's prepare. Let's do it right. And we can do this. No, again, no screaming, no yelling. Very counterintuitive. All you coaches listening out there, all you parents listening out there, one of the great motivators in the history of sports, listen to the way he's talking to his athletes. By the way, if you're wondering what he sounded like, Bear Bryant, in a pregame speech, well, Jeff Rutledge, well, he recalled a speech he remembered from decades ago. Rutledge was a quarterback in the 70s, won an NCAA championship in 78 at Alabama, and he recalled a talk Bear gave about, well, all kinds of things, but really self-respect. The, when
4: the, uh, uh, Connish Holloway was a senior, Steve O'Shea was our fullback, and he made the last play right to the very end of the game. We came behind and won. But see, he's like we talked about. Coach, when I started that game, he said, today we become one. If you don't feel that way you don't belong here. When Steve runs, we run. When John blocks, we block. Now remember this. The game is over. You come back in the shower. You walk by the mirror. And only you and the man in that mirror knows if you did the best you could. You walk out of the dressing room, you see your girlfriend, you hug your mama, and you reach out, you touch your daddy's hand, and only you and the man knows if you did the best you could.
6: And by the way, Rutledge recounted that as if it happened to him yesterday. What an impact this one man had on these thousands of young men. By the way, players also remember being afraid of Bear Bryant, too. Let's hear from John Croyle.
2: You never respect something till you first fear it. It's and a- the respect he has is because we feared him. And I think great leadership has that characteristic. Not fear of physicalness, but the fear of you never want to disappoint that person you respect.
6: And it's so true And again, not physical fear, but disappointment. Not wanting to disappoint that someone you admire and respect. And again, it's all about the respect, because the disappointment, who cares about disappointing someone you don't respect? So remember this, parents, you lead by example, and if your kids don't respect you, good luck. Good luck with everything. And as we come to the close of this celebration of the life of Bear Bryant, many books have been written about the man, but one of the best is Bear Bryant on Leadership by Pat Williams, co-founder of the Orlando Magic, friend of this show, and author of nearly 90 books on leadership. Here's Pat Williams.
2: I'm going to close by the closing paragraphs of the book from uh, Grant Taft, the longtime football coach. Uh, In early January of 83, Coach Bryant attended our National Coaches Convention at the Biltmore Hotel in L.A. After the awards luncheon, I was sitting alone at a table going over my notes for an afternoon presentation. He came over and sat down next to me with an intense look on his face. He said, Grant, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you what I'd do differently if I could do it all over again. I thought, install the wish sooner, run another type defense, treat his coaches and players differently. Then he said to me, Grant I would let everybody know that I'm a Christian. I am one and I didn't tell them.
6: I am one and I didn't tell them. A regret of Bears, a big one. And by the way, Bear Bryant was married to his college sweetheart Mary. They had two children and they had four grandchildren. Bear Bryant died of a heart attack only 37 days after retiring. But his legacy, well, it lives on, and not just in the stadium that bears his name in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or the statue that stands in front of that stadium. He lives on in the hearts of the young men he coached who were now grown men, so many of whom you heard from here today. He changed their lives because he challenged them to be the best players they could be, to be the best men they could be. And again, that Bob Baumauer story and that Joe Namath story, Kenny Stabler, a similar story about, well, challenging the coach and getting benched. A Hall of Famer benched and had to earn his way back onto the starting lineup. And again, you listen with the love and reverence of these grown men decades after having had full contact with this man, Bear Bryant, remembered here on our show, celebrated his birthday Born on this day in history in 1913 and as always our this day in history is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College who teach all the things that matter in life. All the things that are beautiful in life and by the way they just happen to teach things like character and virtue. Things that some believe are passé but everybody knows really in their hearts aren't. And if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses go to Hillsdale. Dot edu. That's Hillsdale.edu. And by the way, the president of the college, Larry arn he's an Arkansas boy too. And you can't take the Arkansas out of the man. Bear Bryant's story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about love, death, music, sports, work, every sphere of American life, and we especially love to hear your stories. And make sure you go to americannetwork.org and write to us with your story, and we'll help you record it. Today's story is brought to us by Dana Misch, and she shares with us a piece of her family's story, a piece that occurred at Buchenwald, one of the very first Nazi concentration camps and the largest one on German soil. And it's a story that she shared in the publication, The Times of Israel, and she graciously recorded it for us. Here's Dana.
13: A few months ago, I stood at Buchenwald in a large open field that was covered in an endless expanse of rocky gray gravel. The ground that I gazed at before me was where the barracks once had been. On that unnaturally humid and sunny afternoon, thunder ominously clapped from heavy storm clouds that loomed off in the distance. The skies certainly echoed my state of mind. As for anyone that visits a concentration camp, it was a particularly sobering and gut-wrenching experience. But for me, it was more than just emotional. It was personal. Why was I there? To learn about my grandfather, who had stood on that very ground some 78 years prior, and reconnect with his life, his journey, his story. The morning after Kristallnacht, at the age of 25, my grandfather was arrested by the SS and taken to Buchenwald as a part of the Special Pogrom, the first ever mass deportation and internment of Jews at that camp. He arrived on November 13, 1938, before the barracks were even built. And for three or four days and nights, he waited among 10,000 other Jews in the freezing winter rain to receive a roof over his head and a 20-centimeter-wide wooden sleeping plank. Many who were there with him during that time didn't survive, and I will always remember the tears that came to my grandfather's eyes in the video interview we have of him, as he hesitatingly rehashed the horrors that befell those around him, frequently and at random. He was one of all too few who was miraculously able to flee Germany during the Holocaust, and I owe my life to his luck. But his journey wasn't over when he got to the United States. Mere weeks after officially becoming an American, he was drafted into the army. He was shipped off to Europe, back into the eye of the storm, just five years after his time at Buchenwald. And, as a soldier in a replacement depot, despite only having gone through basic training, no infantry training, he was nevertheless thrown into combat during the Battle of the Bulge. He fought against the Nazis with the ultimate goal of invading his homeland and, yet again, narrowly lived to tell the tale. He ended up living a very full life. He passed away in 1999 at the age of 85, when I was just 11 years old. But as for my return to Buchenwald, it was actually another more recent death in the family that served as the catalyst. By the time I stood on the same ground that my grandfather had this past September, my father had been gone from us for nine months. He was my grandfather's firstborn, and he had wanted to be able to share his dad's heroic story with the world. So my visit, both to Buchenwald and also afterward to my grandfather's hometown, was to remember the two of them. My grandfather's persistence, and my own father's admiration. It was to pay homage to the sacrifices they made, and the pride they held in raising a family, in continuing our lineage. The reasons behind my journey ebbed and flowed in my mind as I read a passage that was embedded in stone amongst the gray gravel I stood on at the camp. It read, So that the generations to come might know, the children yet to be born, that they too may rise and declare to their children. As a member of the third generation of Holocaust survivors in the U.S., this struck a chord with me. Living now at a distance, both across generations and oceans, from the horrible tragedy that resulted from Hitler's Nazi regime, I had always felt somewhat detached from it. In fact, few of my friends knew the extent of my grandfather's story. That is, until I recently chose to rise and declare it. And now, as my own father's firstborn, carrying forward his lineage, it's something that I too am committed to rising and declaring for future generations as well. There's something sacred about the kind of cycle created by generations, which is really just to say, people that share a heritage over time. And in Judaism, we observe these sacred cycles that connect us with our earliest ancestors in one way the most, through the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In that light, it should come as no surprise that the name of the book that we use on these holidays, the Machzor, shares the same root with the Hebrew word for return, Chazarah. We reliably return to these traditions, thus completing a sacred cycle to remind us of all that we have inherited and all that we will carry forward. When distilled down to their roots, that's what Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah are all about, respectively, remembering and thinking back on our past and looking into the future. As I stood at Buchenwald several months ago, on the ground that held all that it did, my present moment joined together the history that came before me and my future yet to come. Through that return I made into a difficult past, one that altered destinies and set my own life into motion so many years ago, I began a kind of intergenerational remembering. But I also felt that I began a kind of healing Because in that moment, I realized that even though my grandfather and father were both gone, I still carried parts of them within me that I would perpetuate into the future. This year, my hope is that we can all make our own important returns, whether they're on foot or in our minds. Because when we seek out the source of who we are, we end up moving forward into the new year with the two things that have always kept us firmly rooted remembrance,
6: and hope. And thank you for that, Dana. And in her story, Dana mentioned a video interview of her grandfather, and we asked her about it, and she said it was done by the Shoah Foundation, a group founded by Steven Spielberg, to capture video interviews with survivors and witnesses of Shoah, the Hebrew term to describe the Holocaust. And their work has since expanded into documenting many more genocides. In total, they've captured a whopping 55,000 video testimonies. Here's a clip from their interview with Dana's granddad, Arthur Hecht, who was 83 years old at the time and recalled his time at Buchenwald.
0: They had roll calls, you know, we had to stand outside. And in front of you, left and you, right of you, in back of us, they were killing people. You have no idea how. You have no idea, with spades, with... You have no idea. That I pulled through was just a miracle.
6: And here's one more clip of Arthur talking about why the Nazis allowed him to leave the concentration camp in its early
0: days. Only because I could leave Germany at that time. When you could leave Germany, they let you out. And I had to sign that I leave within four weeks or three weeks, I leave the Germany. If not, I go back to the, to the concentration camp again.
6: Leaving wouldn't be an option later on. It's estimated that 240,000 prisoners went through Buchenwald, and 56,545 died there. A death rate of 24%. 8,483 of them were shot dead. 1,100 were hanged. One hundred and fifty four died from being used as human experiments, ranging from testing vaccines to determining the precise fatal dose of a poison. Two Austrian priests were crucified upside down. These are realities that most of us are unaware of. We know of these concentration camps as among the darkest moments in human history, but we don't truly know their stories and the stories of the people who were there. And here on Our American Stories, we're committed to telling those stories. The Americans who are here because of some of the great heroic things that happened, some just by luck, and also some of the memories of people who, well, didn't survive. All of it here on Our American Stories. And thanks to Dana Mish and the Shoah Foundation for sharing the Hex family story. And if you want to see two great documentaries— The Sorrow and the Pity and Shoah are outstanding. They're highly recommended here from this show. Again, thanks to Dana and her family. Their story, here on Our American Stories.